BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. By now, you've probably heard James say that having a great mentor is one of the most important things you can do to get ahead. But finding one, especially the right one, seems next to impossible, unless you do what James does. He's figured out the way to connect with a never-ending supply of the best mentors in the world. His secret? Read their books. These best-selling authors spend months and months researching and writing their books. Let them become your mentors. To get you started, James wanted to give you a chance to win 30 books free from some of the best authors he's interviewed recently. Authors like Seth Godin, Tony Robbins, Stephen Dubner, and 27 more world-class mentors. Just go to www.jamesaltucher.com backslash giveaway for your chance to win all 30 books. Entering's free, plus you can see a list of all 30 books. Just go to jamesaltucher.com backslash giveaway, G-I-V-E-A-W-A-Y, and good luck. And now here's today's show. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So, Stephen, I can't believe, I feel like we were just on a podcast yesterday, and now you've written another book. <laughs> I think I've actually written two since the last time we talked. Wait, so, yeah. I, so, okay, we talked a few months ago on your book, Bold. Oh, no, okay, so we did, I forgot we talked about Bold. Yeah, yeah, yeah so for a year ago, we spoke about the rise of Superman, which was about basically these extreme states of flow with extreme athletes. Then we talked about Bold with Peter Diamandis, which I've now recommended everywhere like i hope that book's doing well how is that book doing by the way oh it, it it was on the bestseller list for you know 10 12 weeks or something like that did really really well and it, it really seems to the most gratifying thing is i keep getting emails from entrepreneurs who kind of read the book and immediately are turning around and applying the advice and using it to kind of up level their their companies and their game well and and i think it's because I remember we discussed this briefly on the podcast with, with you and Peter. You know, Malcolm Gladwell has that book, The Tipping Point, which was so famous, but he never really describes how you know where, when and in what industry a tipping point is going to happen. And I think bold answers the question. You basically kind of extrapolate Moore's Law in a variety of industries and say, here's how the tipping point happens. It's not, I mean, by the way, this, this actually shows up with flow hacking too. It's really strange, but when you have a map, 
right, to, to how things unfold, right? If you understand the map of the flow cycle, it makes hacking flow a lot easier. If you understand kind of the life cycle of an exponential technology, it makes hacking that exponential technology, putting yourself into the equation more easy. Well, we're going to talk about that with now your third book, Tomorrowland. And again, why did you decide like within a month of <laughs> publishing Bold to basically put together another book? Like how'd that happen? So when I sold Rise of Superman, it was actually a two-book deal. I sold Rise and Tomorrowland together. Peter and I, so we, I sold that book when like Abundance was a, a bestseller. Peter was off um, on a crazy speaking tour. I had just finished one and uh, had a break and was selling these books. And, you know, so I thought I was doing those two. And Peter came back like while I was in this whole process, he got so excited about, you know, the ideas in bold, which, you know, were essentially all the questions we were being asked on our speaking tours, right? Immediately, he wrote up a proposal. He sent it to our agent um, without telling me. And then he called me up. He said, hey, we're going to do a follow-up book. It's great. Everybody's totally excited. And I went, oh, my God, we are. Huh. Okay. Fasten our seatbelts. So does this make you feel like you've kind of hit your stride as kind of a career author and writer? And I know you do other things, but, you know, you've had basically like four or five books or four books that I know of in the past couple of years. That's a big deal. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny because I never quite like, there's always a question of like in the beginning, right? You're, you're coming up as a writer and you think, Oh my God, I'm going to get one book out and, and, and it's going to, A, it's going to level me up and I'll be able to not worry about making a living and do what I want, you know, with my time, which is not true at all. Of course. Um, uh, the second part is you wonder once you get through that first book, you're like, oh, wow, I don't feel like a real writer yet. I wonder when that shows up. And Tomorrowland is my seventh book. And I think it's the first time I kind of look at my catalog and I'm like, OK, wow, maybe now I'm a real writer. It's a very good point. I don't think I felt that way until like my 10th book. <laughs> so which was Choose Yourself. I, I didn't feel like. I, you know, sometimes I still don't feel that way. I don't know. But what did you mean when you first said, um, it doesn't quite solve all the problems in terms of like knowing what you're doing for a living? Like what's going on in your head? Creatives make a lot of mistakes. One of which is they don't realize that their career is, if it's going to follow the pattern, it's going to have kind of three sections. The first section is when you spend developing your voice, right? That's like you get get to a point where you're like, oh my God, I'm paid to have this great voice. And suddenly you have a name for yourself. What happens as soon as you have a name for yourself is people who have bigger names come to you and say, hey, write for us. And they don't really want your style. They want you to write their best version of their articles. Meaning like, I remember when I, you know, I was on a staff writer at GQ for, for a while and you know, it was great for my ego. Art Cooper was one of the last lions of magazine journalism. Loved my writing. And he was like, oh, this is fantastic. This is great. This is wonderful. Do that Stephen Kotler thing. He, he was really a big fan of mine. And I got Lyme disease. I lost that job. And the next job I got sort of wired, hired me on as a freelance writer. And when they brought me in, they were like, yeah, we want you to do that GQ style of storytelling, that new journalism science writing that you do. And I wrote my first story and I turned it in. My editor called me up. Can I swear on your podcast? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay. The editor Podcasts called me, are for swearing. The editor called me up and said, Stephen, there's just one thing I don't understand. And I said, what's that? He said, well, every motherfucking word you wrote. <laughs> and I literally, at like age 30, after I thought I was already like totally recognized for being this great Stephen Cutler style writer, whatever, they didn't want me to, Wired didn't want me to write great Stephen Cutler stories. They wanted me to write great Wired stories. 
And so you spend about 10 years, you know, you, you learn to be creative outside the boxes and then you spend about a decade inside the boxes. And then I think you get this third chunk where everything starts coming together. Your grand themes start coming to the surface. People start noticing them. And you think in your mind, oh, wow, when I get to this point, it'll be, it'll be great. I'll, I'll be able to write on easy street, just focus on what I do and, and whatever. And, and you get there and you realize that you're working four times as hard as you ever worked before, um, even though you're doing exactly what you want. And it doesn't sort of let up. And I think all three of those points come for, with major stumbling blocks for any creative. Anybody who's making a living creatively, I think you goes through these kind of three phases and I think each of them is very, very problematic. I'm sure, by the way, there are more phases ahead of me and I just haven't hit them so I don't recognize them yet. But these three I see really clean, cleanly now. Well, I want to talk about Tomorrowland, which is a fascinating book, but this has led me down a, a this discussion has led me down a different tangent just for a second, which is, do you ever feel that praise is almost as harmful as criticism because then it makes you feel like oh i've got to like put my writing in this bottle because that's where the praise is so there's actually great research on this carol dweck's research at stanford on mindset as soon as somebody talks to you as an expert right when you stop asking questions and you start answering them all the time which is essentially what praise does to you it puts you in a fixed mindset so you stop learning you stop growing right and for me what's deadly about that i got into this game as you know originally as a journalist right which is where tomorrowland comes from they're my investigations in the moment science fiction turned into science fact for like 70 different magazines right my favorite room is the one where I'm the dumbest guy in the room and get to ask all the questions, right? So the problem with praise is it convinces you that you have a right to not ask questions and be the expert. And that does all kinds of damage. And how do you get over that? How do you kind of break out of your comfort zone to get crazy again a little bit? I have long maintained that for me, I don't care what happens once my editor is satisfied. Like, I, it, it, this was the same with magazine articles. It's also sort of the same with my books. I am not writing for the general public. In a sense, I'm writing for my editor who represents the general public. And when they sign off on a book, um, I let it go. Everything that happens after that doesn't concern me as much. I'm already on to the next project. And I write in such a way. One of the reasons I go from book to book to book is when a book is coming out, I want to be on to the next project. I don't want to care about what happens out in the world because I'm in it for the art. I, want, I care about what comes next. I care about the creativity. I care about learning and, you know, and that sort of stuff. And I keep the audience out of it. So when I get praise, it's very hard for it to sink in. The problem with that, of course, is you, it, it, can take, it can pull your way out of the present, right? You forget to be grateful. In a sense, if, you, if you're turning that off a bit, you forget to be grateful and you're focused on what challenges and what problems am I, am I trying to solve? And that's its own trap. And you have to kind of caution against that as well, I think. But that's how I do it. So this book's really important. I, I really feel like there's a lot to kind of dig through in, in Tomorrowland. And it's both an amazingly positive and optimistic book. And at this exact same time, it's so scary that it's one of the few books I've read where I think, okay, world society is is dead. <laughs> like, well, is, I, you is know, the end I, of the I human always, race. Peter always people always ask, what's the difference between you and Peter? And I say that uh, there isn't really a difference between us because we both feel this way. But in public, Peter is the guy who says 
the world is getting faster and faster at, a, at an alarming rate. We're heading towards a world of abundance. And I absolutely agree with that. But my feeling, and I think Peter's too, is it's abundance or bust. Either we get it right or we're really going to go down in flames. See, I sort of, I sort of get from your book by the end, and we'll, we'll get into the details why. I sort of think that both are going to happen after I read your book. And I didn't feel this way, by the way, before I read your book. I'm a naturally optimistic person, but we'll, we'll get into this. So, so I want to ask in, in the very first chapter or intro, you, you tell a story about the first time you met Peter and he was explaining his vision for the future of space travel. And you said that everyone else thought he was like this raving madman, but oh, you. Funniest story. You, you believed he was the real deal. And so, so the question is, and, and, and this will probably lead to your story. You know, how do we, let's say as entrepreneurs or investors or just people who are curious about the future, how can we spot the next real deal uh, amidst all the raving madmen that there really are out there? Well, with Peter, right? Peter, when I met Peter, the X Prize was just, you know, sort of coming out of the idea phase and she had just announced it. Um, but it wasn't really real yet. But I had spent a month in the Black Rock Desert where Burning Man is hosted. And when it's not hosted there, they do a lot of uh, speed trials there. And I was with a group of people trying to drive a car through the sound barrier. And they were all rocket scientists. And all of them kept telling me, look, it's much harder to drive a car through the sound barrier than it is to put a rocket ship into low Earth orbit. So when I met Peter, we were in this diner in Chinatown in San Francisco, and Peter's excitable, and he was talking about the X-Prize and breaking open the space barrier and, and you know beating NASA and all this stuff, and everybody in the diner was staring at him. The entire diner was staring at him like he was absolutely out of his mind because he was you know shouting out this rainy Monday morning in the back of this diner being so excited. Um, and I remember thinking, as they were staring at him and thinking – He's out of his mind. I remember thinking that I didn't think he was wrong because I had just I had done my homework. Right. I mean, the first and first and foremost, you know, you got to Elon Musk. We talk about this in bold, right? When you're evaluating idea, first principles are good. And Elon Musk talks about first principles when he was getting into solar power and hybrid cars and electric cars. He wanted to know about batteries. So instead of thinking about where's battery technology, he just looked at the component costs of batteries on the London Metal Exchange. And when he saw they were so cheap, he realized that it was a technological problem. At some point, battery power was going to – it was going to shrink. It was going to be able to handle this stuff and you could make these things very cheaply and scalably. And that was his big insight with Peter. So, so can I ask about that? You mean he didn't see just the prices today. He saw the trend of prices and how they were constantly going down. He saw what it takes to make a battery. And he saw that the component, the cost of the metal inside a battery is really cheap compared to the cost of the actual storage technology, right? That storage technology, all of it is on an exponential growth curve. We're getting, we're moving faster and faster at it. So it's, the, that cost is coming down. The actual only hard costs are the metal that makes up the battery. So in, in a sense, he saw he was skating to where the puck was going as opposed to where the puck was. That's exactly right. And, and Ray Kurzweil tells us the same thing. He became a futurist, right? He started plotting exponential growth curves of technology because he was an inventor. And he realized you can't invent for where the market is right now. You have to invent for where it's going to be. And this is what you guys talk about very well, for instance, in bold regarding like 3D printing as an example. Like it starts off small and nobody can tell that this is something going to be big. But if it's doubling every year, then it's just going to be 10 years before it's amazing. And, you know, and the point we make there, and, and, and it, I think it's echoed in Tomorrowland, is when these things start to develop user-friendly interfaces, right, 
that's when anybody can insert themselves in the equation. We saw this with the internet, right? It was 20 years old and it was used by computer scientists and the military. Um, and then Mark Andreessen invented Mosaic, the user-friendly browser for the internet, right? The interface. And Netscape happened and we went from 26 websites online in 1993 before it was invented to millions online a couple years later, right? Exponential growth because of a user-friendly interface. These same interfaces are showing up everywhere. In Tomorrowland, for example, I talk about synthetic biology. It's the craziest technology out there, right? It's creating life from scratch. It treats DNA code like computer code and says, hey, we can program life on computers. My friend Andrew Hessel, who's an Autodesk Distinguished Researcher, is literally working on a DNA typewriter, a user-friendly interface for synthetic biology. This means – synthetic biology means we can create life from scratch, right? It's new fuels, new foods, new medicines. It's, you know, in another story we tell in Tomorrowland is the world's first genetically engineered organism, a mosquito that doesn't transmit malaria. That's a cure for disease, but it's also a brand new organism birthed totally in our imagination because of synthetic biology. It's getting a user-friendly interface. It's the power of gods in the hands of mortals and not just like a couple of mortals, all of us. Okay, so so it was that chapter that scared me the most. So I'm going to change direction slightly because we're going to get to the scary part. I want to talk about the most hopeful thing, which is your, your anti-aging chapter chapters in Tomorrowland. Can you describe a little bit kind of the technologies that are, that are in the anti-aging space and where you think, uh, that's heading? So I want to start, I actually want to start on the mechanistic side of the equation with, with the story that opens Tomorrowland, which is the story of the world's first bionic soldier, right? David Major Roselle. What's interesting here is, First of all, when I met Major David Russell, we were in we were in uh, Colorado in Denver, uh, maybe in Boulder, excuse me. And it was a rainy day in the winter. There were snow piles on the ground, and it was rainy. It was slippery, and we were walking around uh, Boulder, and we got to a crazy four lane, busy street, traffic, and in both directions, moving really fast. And I stopped on the corner. Right there was a small break in traffic, but I stopped because I was, you know, the able bodied guy was like, I'm not doing that. Major David Roselle like darted across the first lane on his bionic ankle, freezes, jumps across the second, freezes again, hops a snowbank, dodges a puzzle, goes like full on Walter Payton across four lanes of busy traffic on his bionic ankle. So my point is that's where we were a couple of years ago. Where we are today, 50% of the human body is replaceable by bionics. Oh, oh wait, where let, we are, let me ask about him. When he was jumping and doing all this stuff, was it because his ankle was giving him some special? Uh, no, it's, well, yes and no, and I'll, I'll get to that. Yes, the, the difference between a prosthetic and a bionic ankle is a bionic ankle puts energy back into the system, so it restores mobility. It's not just a crutch; it actually puts it does the job of what kind of like our ankle really does, which is it absorbs the power of gravity and uses that to propel us forward. So these new bionic ankles can do that. This is what's crazy. This year, and you asked about anti-aging, and this is the point, um, this year, 2016, excuse me, next year, 2016, we are going to have the first exoskeletons on the market. These are strap-on bionics. So say you've got a bum knee, you've now got a strap-on bionic knee that puts energy back into your knee, and it doesn't just you know help your knee. It actually gives you, it restores vitality, restores youth. So the crazy part about this is that the aged, the number one complaint is you lose control of your limbs, right? Accelerated decrepitude. And it's 
you know, it's the worst part of getting old. It's the number one complaint. And we have strap-on Bionics hitting the market this year that is going to start reversing that trend. Bionics is like biotechnology is accelerating exponentially, which means, you know, this is going to get more better and better and better very, very quickly. And, you know, the other half of, of, of Tomorrowland is kind of the impact these sci-fi technologies are having in the real world. And this is a huge one. If you think about just retirement ages, one of the reasons we retire at 65 is because we slow down. Our bodies slow down, right? So we're about to be able to fix our bodies so they don't do that. That's external technology. So right? let, me, let, me, let me ask because I, I don't fully understand. So so let's take the bionic knee as an example. My bum knee is still underneath kind of the bionic knee. Or are you saying just remove my bum knee, replace it with no, the bionic knee? No, no, no. Knee? I'm saying your bum knee, you strap this on, you wear, you're going to wear this stuff like a brace. So it's going to help your bum knee fold in a, the exact motion it needs to fold. It's going to reinforce your ACL and your MCL and all that stuff. And because you're generating slightly less force than normal with a bum knee, this will put force back into the system. Now, let me ask you a question. If I don't have a bum knee, but let's say I want to. Uh, well, yes, of course. That, I mean, that's what the U.S. military is doing with exoskeletons. They're building. Can I be the six? Mil- I mean, can I be the six million dollar man t- next year? <laughs> let's say in your lifetime and probably in the next decade. This is kind of an offbeat question, but given such and, – and you address this more directly in the book, but given kind of the yeah. uh, scandal about performance-enhancing drugs in athletics, uh, I, if I, I have performance-enhancing bionics, is that going to be create the same type of um, stress in the world of athletics? So you got to understand one thing, first of all. The history of sport literally is the history of drugs in sport. Performance enhancement is not new. You can go back to the first marathon ever run in ancient Greece. People were using performance enhancing substances. It was a blend of wine and strychnine that they thought would help them run faster, right? I'm going to have my wife order the strychnine tomorrow. (laughs) So we've been doing this a long time and it's not going to stop. If you look at the other half of what I talked about in anti-aging in Tomorrowland, right, which was steroids is sort of the wonder drug of tomorrow, right? These things have been banned and marginalized, not because of the science. When you actually look at the science, a lot of what we've been told is totally wrong, but because they threaten the playing field and sport. Well, that, you know, I think the playing field is going to radically change. I think our sports are going to radically change. If you've got strap on bionics, you know, that can let you jump twice as high as normal, doesn't that make for a more interesting, visually exciting game of basketball? Not only that, but again, I get back to, if everybody has that, it's going to – we're all going to be like these superhumans compared to what we are now. Well, you know, you may end up having, you know, what they have in, in professional bodybuilding right now, which is essentially like one category for people who take drugs and one category for people who don't. Or we could have lots of different categories of sport. Of course, all this is ultimately moot because – you know, again, in Tomorrowland, in a different chapter, we look at the future of evolution, right? We are taking control of our genetics top to bottom in, you know, this decade, the next decade. So the changes are going to be external from strap-on bionics. They're going to be, you know, life extension technologies that, you know, do their work. And they're going to be think changes made at birth. And I, by the way, this craziest fact, Fareed Zakaria said this the other day, and it blew my mind. Today, Life extension technologies are moving so quickly and, you know, medicine is moving so quickly and and other things along those lines that we gain five hours of life expectancy every day. 
Ah, simply that, by doing nothing. That's a really interesting statistic. Is that not just the most startling? Hold on, I got to check as, as we're talking. It may be every year. I have I wrote it down. I might, I may be lying to you. Um, I, I like no, five hours every day. every day. It's every day. It's every day, and as he says, we get five hours of life expectancy every day without exercising. So this leads me to some of the stuff you were talking about the brain, like the the one. Um, chip where I can now move my short-term memories uh, to better be easily stored in my in the part of my brain where long-term memories are stored. So will this kind of change sort of the myth of the 10,000-hour rule where, you know, I need 10,000 hours to be world-class at something? Now I might need uh, many fewer hours to be world-class at something because the, the whole shape of my memories and my brain are, are changed. For sure. And I mean, we, you know, we, this, this conversation started in Rise of Superman because flow states, right, are, you know, the altered state of consciousness known as flow that we can, we can now hack, right, massively, massively accelerates learning. And studies run by the U.S. military, people learned almost 500% faster. They cut the time it took to train novice archers and marksmen and whatever in flow in half up to the expert level, right? So, what the flow research suggests is that we can cut the 10,000 hours to ha- in half. There is already technology to help drive you into flow that can help you speed up this process, right? We, with the Flow Genome Project, we work with Advanced Brain Monitoring, one of the companies that, that is doing this. And as you pointed out, this is only the front end of this. So right now, what the research shows is with flow states, we can cut that 10,000 hours in half. With the stuff that you're talking about, with implants, with kind of neural augmentation and aug- augmented cognition, as, you're, as it's known, this stuff can speed up you know, even faster. There's new research today. I mean, literally today, it just broke today about sleep and dopamine, the consolidation and uh, forgetting of memories in sleep and how it aids learning. We're starting to hack learning on, you know, ev- at every stage in the neurological process. A lot goes on and we're being able, we're starting to be able to hack every step in the process. So yeah, we're going to learn a lot faster in the future. So walk me through this. Like, let's say it's 10 years from now and the technologies are not only there, but they're cheap because I, I, initially at first, what's going to happen is rich people can buy it and poor people can't. But let's just say, you know, we have a Moore's law effect and eventually it's all cheap. So walk me through. A, how I can be smarter and better, and then ultimately B, how I'm going to live longer. Like what's what's the technology that's going to happen that's going to allow me to live to 150 or 250 or whatever? So on a certain level with, with, with life, let's start with life extension. You're, the front end of it, right, what we've already seen is the biggest bang for the buck has come from improvements in sanitation improvements in medicine, right? Those small food systems improvement, those small things, nutrition, sanitation, and medicine, those things are going to continue to improve, right? Sanitation is, is an obvious one, but we may have made our environments too sterile, right? We're now realizing that germs and exposure in early childhood is good because it helps a child build up, you know, more of their immune system. So too much sanitation, probably bad. So we've gone like with some of these things, we're going to start dialing them in based much more on our biology as we start to understand that biology. On the far end with life extension, you're looking at everything from stem cells, right? Like when they say 50% of the body is replaceable by bionics, some of that is external. 
Some of that is internal, replacement organs grown from stem cells so we don't reject them. These things are coming very, very quickly as well. So there's a lot of that level things there are. And, and Stephen, can I, can I ask about that? Because I'm, I'm really not so smart. So when I, I read the chapter on stem cells, I don't really understand what happens there. They're sort of like these kind of generic cells I can inject into me and they'll take the place of any cells that I'm missing. Yeah. Well, stem cells, when you are born, you, you have stem cells. These differentiate. They turn into different body parts, right? And once a cell has started becoming a nose, it can't stop and become an ear. Stem cells can become anything. So by harvesting stem cells, we can grow whatever. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, we grew an eye. So we can use stem cells, turn them into whatever body parts we need, and theoretically replace, swap out our old parts for new parts. So let's take Alzheimer's as an example. So maybe some of the cells in my brain start to deteriorate because of plaque or whatever. Uh, can I just, what happens? Do I just inject stem cells into my brain and then it knows what cells to replace? Okay, I cannot speak to Alzheimer's. First of all, I don't, it seems like a lot more is going on. And I, I you know, there may be stem cell work in Alzheimer's. I just don't know about it. And I don't wanna, I don't wanna speak about something I'm not aware of. But we, for certain, we know that, you know, they're, they're doing things. I, hell, I had the procedure not too long ago. You can do things where right now they will take your platelets, right, out of your, out of your body. They'll take some blood. They'll put it, them into a centrifuge. They'll spin them. They'll spin out the platelets from the blood, with, you know, which are rich in stem cells, and they'll re-inject them into wounds or into torn organs. I did this. I had a really bad rotator cuff tear. I've had a lot of rotator cuff tears in my life. They usually take cortisone shots and a year to two years to repair. I had stem cells injected into a torn rotator cuff and it was healed up to the point that I could lift weights after a month. After two and a half months, I had no pain and I was back basically lifting almost as much as I was lifting before the injury. Do the stem cells know what cells to replace? It, it's where we put them. We can guide them. I see. Okay. So, so you inject them right into that area. They see there's kind of like a gap and they kind of fill the area and do what they're supposed to do. Yep. And we, all you're doing is just harnessing a natural biological process, right? Oh. So, so as we get older, our cells either start to deteriorate or not replace themselves. And you're saying we can kind of go in for like regular stem cell injections kind of all over the body. And that will, in a sense, make us youthful again. I am not saying that, but there are a lot of stem cell doctors out there who are saying that I, and and I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I, you know, Aubrey de Grey talks about the pathways to kind of longevity. And there are six or seven different possible interventions in the body that we can make from steroids, hormone replacement therapy, that sort of stuff, because our hormones decline as we get older, so we can boost them. Stem cells, there are ways to kind of slow down the kind of what happens to the, as we age, the end of our DNA strands start to kind of fragment and, and, and fall apart. There's ways to slow that down. So there's interventions kind of at every step in the chain and that those are all being pursued. And, you know, Hotleak, my partner, Peter Diamandis' company, Human Longevity International uh, or Incorporated, excuse me, is, is going hard after the stem cell approach. Um, Bob Hariri is one of the founders and he's one of the stem cell pioneers. 
other people are taking different approaches, right? Ron Rothenberg, who I, I look at in the book, is one of the, our first anti-aging doctors, and he's going after hormones. I want to actually talk about hormones and steroids in a second, but I want to hit one of the earlier chapters. So you, you talk about the story of a guy who was blind essentially from a very early age or, or almost from birth, and sight is restored to him. A camera, I guess, is put uh, or sends images kind of directly into the brain, and his brain's mapped out in advance so they know how to basically trigger uh, the brain's awareness of edges and colors and lights and so on. So how do you see this technology advancing? You got to back it up and, and, and put it in context because the story's ridiculous. I had spent a year looking at artificial vision research. And at the end of the year, I was all set to write a story for Wired. We got Wired. My editor at Wired got a postcard from this doctor named William DeBell and who's sort of like a maverick outsider scientist researcher Done some stuff, but but outside the norm. And all it said was, hi, my name is William DeBell. I've invented the world's first artificial vision pl- implant. We're going to turn it on in two weeks in a patient. Come check it out. And, you know. You can't talk- turn that down. <laughs> we talked about it. I was like, there's no possible way this is real, right? Like I had been through the entire freaking field. There was no way it was real. But like, as you said, you can't turn it down. And so what happens is day one, I show up. I meet a blind man, right? Been blind for 21 years in both eyes. And two days later, after this device has been turned on, he can see well enough to drive a car around a parking lot. That's amazing. And like, I know people who go through this have kind of like psychological uh, analysis beforehand to see if they could handle it. But what is, when you see this happen, what is the experience of someone who never knew what anything looked like? Like, do they say, well, so, Oh so yeah, he, this is what I thought I would see. So Jens, uh, Jens is the name of the patient this was done in actually had sight. He was born sighted. He lost his first eye in a, uh, he was splitting firewood and on the second eye in a snowmobile accident, like a year later. He was like 19, I think, when it happened, and 21 when he lost the second eye. So I hadn't, he was in his 40s when I met him. So uh, he had sight before that, but it was astounding. I mean, he was in tears. We were all kind of in tears. It was, you know, it was an amazing, amazing moment. I'll tell you a funny story about that. When the artificial vision... For, 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 first off, before you tell me that story, it's actually kind of funny that he lost both eyes, I have to say. Oh, my so, God. It's the, the craziest thing in the world. And this guy, by the way, was an a classically trained pianist who, you know, he built a solar powered house after being blind. He gave birth at home to his, he helped his wife give birth to, I think it was four children, totally blind. Oh my God. Um, gave classical pianist recitals uh, for five years to pay for the operation to have this installed. And he had to memorize whole scores to do it. it like an amazing man, really, truly amazing man. And when the thing was being turned on, right? Like I was sitting across from him doctor was next to him and there were a couple of texts to his side and I was sitting across from him and it's like 10, 9, 8, you know, we're going to count on to curing blindness. History is about to be made. And I realize I'm sitting directly across from the dude. And when the lights go on, he's going to look up and see me. And I, you know, first of all, I was a reporter. So you never want to be in the story, right? That's first instinct is get yourself out of the story. And second of all, like I felt really weird about like, you know, history is about to happen. I didn't want to put myself into the middle of it. So I got up and I tried to like squirt to my left. Well, what the hell was I thinking, right? The dude is blind. He's been tracking, you know, motion through noise or noise through motion for for 20 years at this point. I jumped to my left. 
his head turns, the machine clicks on, and when the world's first artificial vision implant gets turned on, I'm what is seen. <laughs> that's that's a, a, a great claim in history. It's also, I, you know, I have to tell you, if there was a moment when Tomorrowland as a metaphor came together for me, it was that moment because I realized that I really, really, really tried to get out of the way, right? I couldn't duck. I couldn't move fast enough. There was no way to do it. I couldn't get out of the way of the future. And I think it's the same for everybody, right? Tomorrow land is coming for all of us at an alarming rate, right? As you said, you were really, really hopeful. And then you read the book and now you're super hopeful and really terrified. Terrified. And that's the point, right? This stuff is coming for us and we cannot get out of the way. And that was like, you know, I started wondering about all the science fiction technologies turning into science fact back when I met Peter. But it was a couple years later when I had that experience when I went, oh, wait a minute. Something's really going on here at a, at a society-wide level and culture is never going to be the same. We're never going to be the same. So I, I want to ask about the, the vision thing again because – so so you were what he saw because the cameras were looking at you and then yeah. sending the messages to his brain. What if the cameras – what if I had cameras all over the world looking at things and I use my brain to kind of decide which camera I'm going to look at? The same way they use now so, thought so, so, impulses to control exoskeletons. Let, yes. A, a, yes, that's entirely possible. And B, this is kind of – some of David Eagleman's uh, research, he's a Baylor neuroscientist. Uh, he's actually on the board of the Flow Genome Project where he works with us on flow stuff. But uh, he has argued for a very, very long time that the brain is all our senses are are just peripherals to the computer processor of the brain. And it turns out the human body is really good at accepting peripherals. It doesn't, our ears are peripherals that pick up a certain kind of sound, right? But we've got artificial ears already that can do the same thing, cochlear implants, and pretty soon we can expand the range of what they're going to be able to hear. So in a couple of years, we'll be able to have bat hearing if we want. That sort of thing is going to become possible. If you think about it, a phone is a peripheral ear. A phone is, I mean, well, you want to actually get even stranger, and actually David makes this point in, in his most recent TED Talk, Every moment of every day, if you live in a city, there are millions of cell phone conversations passing through you at every moment in the form of radio waves. We don't have the right detectors, right? We don't have the right peripherals to pick them up, but we can. In fact, you can, I mean, it's, it's weirder than that. Like you could actually have the kind of peripheral that picks up the sound waves and turns them into visual images so you could see representations of the cell phone conversations not now but that's coming too so it's not just like we can augment our senses we can mess with them we can really 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 start to do some strange stuff and this stuff is you know not here today but if you just use kind of exponential growth curves to to kind of move it out biotechnology right now is accelerating at four times the speed of moore's law so it's doubling in power Every five months. Right. So that's, right? That, that's kind of both the optimistic and the terrifying thing. Like all of these things we're talking about where we know the, the direction to go, the direction is going to, we're going to get there because, <laughs> because we're already going in that direction. So, so it's, it's without a doubt because of this Moore's law effect or this exponential effect, we're going to get to all these destinations. And that's, I, you know, I, by the way, I, I, just to get back to the practical for half a second and where you started this conversation. The fact that what you just said 
is is the point, right? We are you can look use the exponential growth curves as a roadmap. You can say, okay, this is where the technology is today. This is, you know, where it's going to be five years from now, 10 years from now. And, you know, making predictions is a haphazard, ridiculous business. And even in Tomorrowland, I try to stay out of the prediction business other than kind of looking at the impact it's going to have on society and culture um, that we're not looking at. I'm just, I, I identify a lot of blind spots, but I'm, you know, mind uploading is a technology I talk about in Tomorrowland, right? People have put various dates on it. The, the guy I interviewed for in Tomorrowland puts 2025 is the point that we can store our brains on silicon, preserve our personalities forever. Do you think, do you think, um, and this is something that isn't really researched, but do you think consciousness will be preserved as well as well, memory? That's, that's what they're, tr- that's what they're thinking is that they're, you know, Ray Kurzweil has said that we could, we're going to do this by the late, uh, 2040s. That is the goal. It, there are lots of questions, not the least of which is what the hell is consciousness? Right. How can we, how do we preserve it? Right. Um, cause that's something of, we know nothing about really. Well, you know, and the attempt that I talk about, which was an attempt, uh, that came out of a, a group in England, their idea was, Hey, we can, res- we can, if we record all the inputs of the senses, if we get a good enough kind of processing device and playback device, the senses add up into life life experiences and we might be able to play back consciousness. That's right. the idea they're pursuing. Right. But I'm going to throw that back at you with your other thing, which is that all of these senses are peripherals to what, who we really are. And, and, and who we really are as a construction. Their argument is that if you get enough processing speed in the center of this, right, you get the, the data capture devices that capture what the senses can do. And the interesting thing is back in 2010, 2000, when I was first looking at this, we already actually had, those capture devices. We could already record the inputs of all the senses, basically. So that part was sort of done. The processing part in the middle is most people believe is just a question of computer power. I am not so sure. I don't think that's going to be the solution, but a lot of people disagree with me on that. The playback device is literally like a VR technology, like, you know, the next version of the Oculus Rift, right? So we're already at that level, we're already there. And maybe that will actually produce recordable consciousness. Maybe not. Right. I think it's much farther out. But where I think it gets really interesting, you know, on this particular one is what this means for society. And and the the point I make in the book is I look at the impact on religion, which is if you look at religion, all five of the major world's religions use the threat of the hereafter, what comes next to kind of steer behavior and shape shape behavior in the present. So what happens to theological morality in the face of technological immortality? It's a crazy question, but as you pointed out when we started all this, we're going to have to deal with it sometime in the next 50 years to 100 years. It's coming. This is where it's going. So, okay, how do I – and this is where we get into the kind of steroids and hormones discussion. But how do I now take advantage to be a better version of who I am? And then there's another question, which is – from a business standpoint, how can I take advantage of the knowledge of, of all this, that this is kind of coming down the road? But, but first, personally, like, like, what do you do, given all the knowledge that you have as, while you've researched this book, what do you do to become kind of like a super version of yourself? Well, you know, I personally think I'm more interested in so neuroscience and in a sense, psychology are now both kind of advancing exponentially. Neuroscience, it's obvious because of the technology. Psychology is is doing this because we are now, we have big data capabilities. So we can now 
mine huge data sets and get all kinds of information out of it, right? So I am more interested, and this is kind of the work with the Flow Genome Project, in these internal hacks on performance. I think that's the stuff that's here today and ready for deployment at a personal level. And I think- Like what? You know, what, what internal hacks? Well, any of the f- stuff we, we're doing with Flow is what I'm most interested in because we know- it's a step function's worth of change in performance, right? It doesn't matter whose metric you use in business. McKinsey found it's a 500% boost in productivity. We know it's a 500% boost in learning by studies done by the U.S. military. Studies I've done at the Flow Genome Project and done in Australia show that creativity is enhanced 500 to 700%. This list kind of goes on and on. Doing what though? Like specifically, what do you do? Well, you could, I mean, flow hacking is, you know, is complicated, but we've identified 17 different triggers that can push us into flow. We've mapped the flow cycle. So knowing where you are, you know, this is a very long, long discussion. And, you know, the shortest answer is go to the Flow Genome Project website and take the flow diagnostic. Everybody gets into flow different ways. This diagnostic will show you which area in your life uh, you're likely to find the most flow. So you can start there. It's free. It's flowgenomeproject.com. And then what about, um, like, let's say the use of uh, steroids or human growth har- hormone or even DHEA, which you refer to in, in Tomorrowland. Like, would you say these things also can help contribute to either enhanced energy or flow or whatever? So, yes. I mean, I'm, I, I, I do think supplements – neurotropics have a lot of potential. What I think is we know very little about neurochemistry in the brain. It's a black box still. We can sort of measure it indirectly, right, using blood flow and things like that um, and PET scans and whatnot, but we can't yet put a microsensor in your brain that measures neurochemical release down to the ion channel level. And it's not really a sensor problem, right? The sensors are progressing exponentially. Right now, the, the issue is most of that neurochemical dump happens really deep in your brainstem, right? So like I can't put le- – like ethically insert a sensor into your brain to kind of hack this stuff. I think what I have noticed and I think what, what most people have noticed and what – you know, this is where medicine is moving towards more and more personalized medicine. And the reason it's doing this is – Every disease they look at closely, whether you're talking about Lyme disease or cancer or whatnot, they're personalized. They're individual. The same is going to be true on the supplement end. And the, you know, the 23andMe genetic snapshot that you can now get is a little useful, but we're not there yet, right? So we don't have flow states in a pill. And we don't, a lot of these supplements, we just don't have the exact information we need. So I don't think you know, I like we say at the Flow Genome Project all the time, you have to conduct the experiment yourself. You have to find out what works for you. So the point is, yeah, some of this stuff will produce real benefits for you, but I think it's individual. You can kind of use broad categories as a guide, and I think it's the individual. And if you look at the supplements I take, they're pretty simple and straightforward, and they're nothing fancy. Now, my friend Dave Asprey totally disagrees with me. Peter totally disagrees with me. Ray Kurzweil totally disagrees with me. These guys take a lot of supplements all day long and they're smart guys who, you know, are high performers in the world. So they're getting, you know, real benefit. And like, like what do they take? I mean, they t- everything you could possibly imagine. I mean, Ray, Ray's, Ray wrote uh, his book Transcend about a supplement regimen. I think it's almost a hundred pills thick. <laughs> 
Like, oh my God. you know, I, I, what I, fish oil for, you know, is, is, is they take, they take DHEA, they take turmeric, they take, God, and the list just goes on and on and on and on. And I, you know, I tried some of these things. I, when I was recovering from Lyme disease, I was on testosterone for about a couple of years and I was on growth hormone for a year. And, um, I, the growth hormone had very little effect on me. I didn't, I didn't think it did anything. The testosterone made a difference for, uh, recovery. I would recover in shorter periods of time, but eventually, uh, I, I didn't need it anymore. Um, my levels were back up to normal and they were staying there. So, um, I, I, I came off that. And, um, so, you know, there's a big menu out there of stuff to play with and try. I tend to I, I, t- I tend to really like Tim Ferriss's research into a lot of this stuff. Also, I think Tim's a really good source for this stuff. Yes, um, I am not. I you know I am more interested in psychological hacks in flow hacks. Uh, I don't think the pharmacological those kinds of pharmacological interventions are there yet. But I'm in the minority in the life extension community. Let's say you just graduated from high school or college, and now, and you're thinking you you, you read all this stuff. And you're thinking, boy, this is where the future is going in terms of business, in terms of money making potential. What would you start to look at? Well, that's a that's a great question because that's where you know it's wide open. And this is sort of a this is this was the central topic in bold, right? The fact that for the first time ever, individuals have the power to change the world, right? We can build amazing businesses on the backs of these exponential growing technologies. And so the first thing I look for is does this technology have a user-friendly interface? We know 3D printing. If you can point to click a mouse, you can print in 3D. The new versions of robots that are coming online now, a lot of them can be programmed by simply like moving their arms. Humanoid robots, you move their arms and they're programmed. It's a user-friendly interface. Children can program robot, robots. Synthetic biology, they're working on it. It's, you know, it's on a developmental timeline. We're going to have a user-friendly interface for that. Farther out, Right. There's a guy named Lee Cronin in Scotland, I believe, who's working on a 3D printer for chemistry. His idea is that we can make prescription drugs downloadable. But what it's really going to mean is anybody can be an at home chemist because it's going to be a user friendly interface for chemistry. So you can, you know, all these things are developing. So the first thing to figure out is where's the user friendly interface? And then honestly, and uh, you can go to – so I wrote about this. There's, if you go to my Forbes blog, which is Far Frontiers, Stephen Kotler, Far Frontiers, it's the URL, um, I think, you will find something called the passion recipe. The second thing, and this is talked about in, in bold and I think exemplified in Tomorrowland, you got to build these businesses on the backs of passion. You absolutely have to do it both because it's so goddamn hard to be an entrepreneur and also because – Today, if you're going to build a business on the back of something, you know, and really be successful, it's got to scale. And passion always scales, it, you know, and it drives kind of, you know, scalar effects, right? Things go viral. We see this all the time. And so the question is, how do you figure out what you're passionate about? One easy way is the flow profile. We tend to be extraordinarily passionate about those things that produce flow in our lives. So that's one direction. If you want to take it farther, there's something I call the passion recipe that really just looks at how do we stack curiosity is on top of each other to create passions. I want to get now to the the terrifying part, which you briefly referred to just now, which is synthetic biology. So essentially with synthetic biology, I can kind of make my own form of life or even worse, I can make my own disease and kind of release it out there. And there's no cure for it because I just made it and I can wipe out everyone. 
And that's that if that can't happen now, it's going to be able to happen in 10 years. Well, I mean, the scary part is, that, you know, it can probably happen now. Right. That's the in the article uh, in, in, that I in the point I examine this in the book. You know, I do it with, uh, you know, Andrew Hessel is one of kind of the world's leading experts on synthetic biology. And Mark Goodman is one of the world's leading experts on kind of high tech security. And, you know, they're both very, very clear about the fact that this stuff is doable now and, you know, almost easy and it's going to get more and more customizable right now i can make a bioweapon for sure not a problem people have done it we saw it you know we've seen it over and over in labs it can be done the question now is pretty soon i'm going to make a bioweapon let's say an aerosolized virus that targets you james and nobody else so you know we're at a cocktail party i spray this thing in your vicinity nobody else gets sick you, maybe you get a little cold and then two years down the line, your brain starts to deteriorate, right? It looks like you've just gotten a neurodegenerative disease. It doesn't even look like there's an assault and you can't even remember it anyways because it was two years ago and all you did is smell a funky perfume. That's where it starts getting really, really, really bizarre. And there's no question that criminals will exploit this technology. They've exploited every single other digital technology that's ever come along at every level, this technology will be exploited. It's coming. So the question is, how do we defend against it? And it's interesting because none of the old methods apply, which is not to say there aren't methods. The FBI has been open sourcing this to the entire synthetic biology community, right? They are not the cutting edge of this. So they said, hey, wait a minute, let's get more scientists involved. Let's use an open source model. Let's see what we can do. They've had some initial successes. We're probably going to have some terrible failures. The other thing to remember is we have sensor technology that is also progressing exponentially, and we can deploy it. It's a little bit hellish on our privacy concerns, so there's, of course, a trade-off. But we're going to be able to you know, put microsensors in public places that could detect you know, bioweapons, et cetera, et cetera, sooner and sooner and sooner, right? So is this stuff going away? No. Are there ways of fighting back? Yes. Will they work? Nobody knows. You know, it's interesting because you just made me think that this other scary thought, not as terrifying, but I can be like walking in a public space and it'll, some sensor will kind of announce this person hasn't showered in five days. Dude, it's so much worse than that. I mean, that, that would be polite. I'm fine with that because we've got that sensor anyways. If you haven't showered in five days, I got a sensor. It's called my nose, right? <laughs> like I'm going to get that. What we got coming is sensors that are essentially going to, you know, you're going to be able to, that you're going to pass by these things. They're going to, you're going to exhale and they're going to know what you've been eating, what kind of mood you're in. Those kind like really personal information can be, you know, can be detected in this stuff and will be, right? So it's going to get, it's much, if, if we thought ubiquitous television cameras was invasive or reading our emails, good God. <laughs> right. So, so again, both terrifying and optimistic. And I already can kind of guess what makes you most optimistic, which is the, the research on, on flow. But what other, out of all of these different areas that you explored, and you explored so many different areas, I mean, I'd say so, I have covered one-tenth of it in these questions, but what makes you most excited about the future? So I think we can answer like four questions at once. What makes me most excited about the future? Where do I think some of the greatest business opportunity lies, right? I am really interested in virtual reality. 
here's what we know about virtual reality. First of all, the playback devices are showing up, right? Next three to five years, this is going to be exploding. Historically, what we see- By playback device- uh, I mean Oculus Rift. I mean like VR, immersive VR devices like Oculus Rift. I misspoke. Playback device is not what I'm talking about. I mean immersive virtual reality devices, right? Oculus Rift, what, you know, Facebook bought for a billion dollars and they're about to put a billion dollars more of research into it and we're going to get that device pretty soon. Right. Um, Right. So that's coming. I think there is an internet-sized opportunity inside the world of virtual reality. And the reason I feel that way are two things, two key indicators that I think are really, well, three actually. The technology is progressing exponentially, so that's the obvious one. The second one is the first virtual world was arguably Second Life, right, Philip, created by Philip Rosedale uh, back in the 90s. And I think it was 1996, I want to say. I could be wrong here, late 90s maybe. The Newsweek, Businessweek put the first millionaire online who had earned all their money in Second Life. So we know there's economic possibilities inside of virtual worlds, okay? That's, that's, that's the second key point. Um, so that's already been proven out. The third key point is, and it goes back to flow. So we know flow is because it produces this huge dump of five very potent feel-good neurochemicals It's one of the most, if not the most addictive state on earth. It's incredibly pleasurable. Now, today, we know that video games produce low-grade flow states. These are mostly just dopamine reward loops. Dopamine is one out of the five chemicals the brain produces in flow. We're already using technology to hack dopamine. We've got other video games that can hack a couple other of these neurochemicals. Once we move into virtual reality, for a variety of reasons that I won't go into – we're going to be able to start to produce more and more of these neurochemicals. We're going to be able to put people into, say, deep flow states, the so-called most addictive state on earth with virtual reality. What this means, flow states are both really, really fun, right, and really, 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 really kind of meaningful. We know that the people with the most flow in their lives score off the charts for kind of overall life satisfaction and well-being and meaning. Their lives mean a lot. Flow states tend to mean a lot to us. This means we're going to be able to, in virtual reality, create experiences that are not just as much fun as regular reality or maybe more fun, but they're also going to be deeply meaningful. And that we don't have right now, right? Video games may be really freaking addictive, but they're a little thin and reedy and hollow um, for most of us, right? Um, so they don't have that. But once that happens, we're going to start migrating into virtual reality. So one of the interesting questions posed by all this technology is what the hell happens to our jobs? AI is going to take our jobs. Robotics is going to take our jobs. All this stuff that's another thing people are really afraid of right now. I think one of the things that's going to happen is our jobs are going to move into the virtual world because we're going to be spending more and more time there. And I think you know, Ready Player One is the sci-fi book that lays this out the best. I think it's going to come in through an education system. We can make virtual reality educational flow games that massively amplify learning. They're scalable. Anybody who has, you know, access to a kind of smartphone can play them and they can solve global education problems. And, you know, and people are working on these already. Video game, virtual reality games that create flow. So we're seeing this already. It's already in the science fiction literature. People are already working on it. And it's, you know, over the next three to five years, it's happening. And I think it's the most exciting, interesting thing going right now. So, so Stephen, Tomorrowland is just, it, the book blew my mind. It's an excellent book. I definitely, I'm actually including it on my 
book list that I send out to all my subscribers. I, I highly recommend it. What's the next book? You do two books a year now, so what, what are you working on? Uh, I've teamed up with my partner on the Flow Genome Project, Jamie Wheel, and we're writing a book called Stealing Fire. That is uh, sort of flow states are a, you know, they sort of sit inside this larger category that we loosely and possibly unfortunately call altered states of consciousness. We're starting to learn a whole bunch of really interesting things about this kind of this category. And one of the things that we're learning is like flow, a lot of these altered states, whether we're talking about, you know, so-called spiritual experiences or trance states or flow states or meditative states or even psychedelic experiences, all these things have under the right conditions enormously kind of performance-enhancing qualities. They're in a sense very, very good for us. They have health benefits, et cetera, et cetera. They up creativity. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is still sort of mired in historical controversy, but it's now emerging out of it. And we're getting a look at this broader category that flow sits inside so the next book, Stealing the Fire, is about this broader category and how we can kind of utilize it in our lives. And final question, since a lot of this research seems to have been motivated by the science fiction authors of the past that you grew up with, what science fiction authors do you recommend? It's a fair question. I, you know, I'm a big fan of, if you haven't read William Gibson or Neil Stevenson, to me, like they're the godfathers of cyberpunk. I, you know, I'm huge fans of them. I think Richard K. Morgan who uh, is one of the darkest guys out there. I never uh, heard of him. He, so he wrote a book, my fa- he wrote a book called Altered Carbon. He's written a lot of books, but Altered Carbon is, we talked about mind uploading, storing self on, on silicon. They're doing it for educational purposes mainly, right? So you could kind of preserve genius and, and, and relive genius. He looks at the dark side of this and it's really dark, really, really dark. Um, and his first book is Altered Carbon and uh, it start there. Um, it, it gets hard to read because it gets pretty bleak at some point. I think that's, you know, I think his stuff is interesting. The book everybody loves right now is Blind Sight by Peter Watts, which is you know, an alien encounter book, but what I think is getting interesting about it is he's taking it. We've gone through all the familiar tropes and he's starting to push into kind of the places that we haven't thought about this before and bigger questions about consciousness and consciousness in the universe. And it's a little farther out there, um, but really interesting. And you also mentioned Ernest Klein uh, with Ready Player, Ready Play One. Yeah, which I love. Okay, well, Stephen, thanks so much for spending the time and and being the this is the third time you're on my podcast. So your next book, come on again, and we'll talk about flow. But I really appreciate it, Janet. I can't thank you for all the support. It's been a lot of fun talking to you over the past couple of years. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Bye. 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 For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. 
Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.